Uh, last week, we studied uh, the exciting story of Philip and the man from Ethiopia. Uh, that, that's another one of my favorites. We learned several things from that passage. We learned the importance of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and uh, listening to his promptings, and not only listening, but then promptly obeying uh, when he does bump us. Uh, We also learned the impact and the importance of asking questions. Uh, It was a question that Philip asked this man that started the conversation and allowed him the open door to to tell him about Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's what it takes. Uh, It's been fun with the new members class. We'd spend some time talking through our testimonies of salvation. And there was one there that had been saved, started by a question, someone just asking a question. And I think that's something that we can improve on. It's a, good, it's a good tool to have in our tool bag as we're thinking about how to interact with the lost. Today we're going to join the Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey as he's found himself now in the city of Athens. And he's burdened for the lost. And we're going to see how that burden came about. And the next week, we're going to look at the message itself that he preaches uh, to them. It's, again, just too much to, to get accomplished here in one, in one shot. As we put this passage in context, it's just kind of real quickly here, think about what's going on. Uh, it's a second missionary journey. Remember, the first was Paul and Barnabas. Um, at the end of that, they're getting ready to go again, and Paul and Barnabas have a, have a division. Uh, John, or John Mark who had been with them before, and Barnabas wants to bring him again. Paul doesn't want to, and so they separate. Um, Paul goes his way with Silas, and Barnabas goes his way with John Mark. God used it. Two different directions, two different teams now out there instead of just one. Uh, Paul and his team, they attempt to go to Asia Minor. That was their goal, uh, specifically Ephesus, and, and they were redirected by the Holy Spirit. The Macedonian vision, you know that, that passage. Uh, that takes place here just in the chapter before. They find themselves in Philippi, and they begin to preach the gospel in Philippi, and there's some conversions. Exciting things are taking place. They're arrested, they're beaten, they're placed in prison, and then, of course, we see the the conversion of the Philippian jailer there at the tail end of that story. The Holy Spirit now moves them on to Thessalonica. Uh, That's a a cool word. It's hard to say that word fast. Uh, Thessalonica, and uh, they were there in that city. And again, God was working. Uh, Jews trusted Christ, and it says many Greeks trusted Christ as well there in that city. The Jews become envious, and they begin to gather about them, uh, as the King James says, fellows of a baser sort, lewd fellows of a baser sort. Use your imagination. I think you can understand what it's talking about. And they start this uproar. And uh, basically, to escape uh, with their lives, the believers move Paul and Silas on, and they find themselves in Berea. Berea is a cool town. Uh, this is the place where it says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. I hope you guys do that. Um, I don't have it all straight. I don't understand everything. You guys are going to find things that I miss, and if you find things that are incorrect, come, bring it to my attention. It's important that we're in the word following up. Uh, I think that's important. Well, the mob from Thessalonica followed them to Berea. And now they're there in Berea, and the brethren, the the believers, take Paul, and it says in verse 15 of chapter 17, they conducted him away from Athens, brought him away unto Athens, and then receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for them to come with all speed, they departed. So they bring Paul to Athens. Uh, He's there. He's by himself. And he sends word. He gives them word to make sure that Silas and Timothy follow and get here as quickly as they can. So we pick up the story with Paul in the city of Athens, the cultural center of the world at that time. Now, it wasn't in all of its glory like it had been a couple hundred years before that. 
But it was still a pretty incredible place, the cultural center of the world, and he's here with time on his hands. How many of you would have enjoyed that? You're kind of history buffs, and you would enjoy looking around, and you're like, man, I got places I'd go see. <laughs> I'd be checking some things out. Um, you know, Paul had had several exhausting weeks, probably months of ministry, uh, difficult times, exciting conversions, intense persecution, narrow escapes, probably this emotional roller coaster. I'm sure he was a little bit tired. I'm guessing maybe a little breather wasn't a bad thing. But if you found yourself in Athens with time to kill, what would you do? I think the same things Paul did. I think he went to check it out. I think he was walking the streets. I think he was like, what's this? And uh, pulling his iPhone out and taking pictures, right? I mean, he's got to document what's going on. Um, maybe not. Wouldn't it be a bummer to not be able to share what you're doing? You have to just tell somebody about it. You can't post it on Facebook. Would you have been okay, Susan? That would have been tough on you. <laughs> it would have been tough on you. Um, we enjoyed the documentation of the trip. It was fun to see that. Have you ever found yourself in a big city as a tourist? Uh, maybe it's pride, but I hate acting like a, or looking like a tourist in Columbia Falls. I don't know. It's just one of those things that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I've never been to the amazing fun center. Well, I guess I had the fun center. I've never been to the House of Mystery. Sorry if that's your thing. But I just I can't, I can't bring myself to do it because I feel like a tourist. I want to put another plate over the top of mine so they don't know it's me that's there. That's probably pride. Um, but anyway, when I'm in a different city somewhere else, I don't necessarily mind looking like a tourist. I remember a couple of occasions I was in my college, and we traveled on a drama team. Fortunately for the, everybody in the churches, I wasn't up on stage. I was running lights and sound. I was behind the scenes. And uh, we traveled all the way from Wisconsin across I-80, all the way across the country. And uh, we got to the coast. We worked our way up the coastline up into Canada. And uh, I was able to see New York City. That was, that was amazing. Uh, we spent the night in a church uh, there, downtown Queens. We heard gunshots during the night. I mean, it was, it was New York City. And uh, we had a chance to explore a little bit the next day. We saw the Intrepid, and we got to Ellis Island and saw the Statue of Liberty, and that was, that was cool. We were in the, near the area of Boston on a Sunday, and we had a day off the next day. <clears throat> and so we really wanted to see the city. It took a little while to drive and get in there, and by the time we had all that worked out, it was, it was pushing early afternoon. And the leader of the team said, we've got to be back to the van by whatever time so that we can get to our hotel and, and get on to the next place. But we really wanted to see Boston, and we wanted to see the Freedom Trail. There were three of us guys, and we thought, we're young, we're in good shape, we're just going to run the trail. We're going to get it in as much as we can. And so it was the fastest trip through the Freedom Trail I imagine anybody's ever done. We stopped and took a picture at every location, you know, the signs and the, the church and uh, the graveyards and, and all of that. We ended up at the USS Constitution, and we were just in awe. It was so much fun to see it all. Took pictures of the, of the ship, and then we realized that we're teenage guys who've been running. We're hungry. We found a little fish market there, and then they, we had a seafood dinner. And then we realized that it got a lot later than we thought it was. And it was a long ways all the way back around to where the van was parked. <clears throat> and we found a guy there on the shore that had a boat. And how we did it, I don't know, but somehow we convinced him to take us across the channel, <laughs> across the bay, and it was a little closer walk from there. And anyway, he helped us out, or we'd have been in trouble. Um, but good memories. We did the tours thing in Boston, and we did it in New York City. I remember the Benin team. Uh, some of you guys will remember that. I see Dave and, and Darren. Frank's not here. Remember, remember Paris? Fondly? <laughs> I'm not totally sure if it's fond memories or not, but we landed, I want to say, 6 in the morning. It was really early. We flew all night, and we got our stuff to the hotel, and tiny little hotel rooms, and then we just spent the day trying to figure out Paris, the bus system and the, the train system, and we saw several of the sites, and <clears throat> the uh, Arc de Triumph there at the end, and we ate a meal together, and 
got lost on the, on the train system, went the wrong direction, and finally waited our, back to our hotel. Um, I'm bringing these up for a reason. I'll mention these here in just a little bit. We were tourists. We were sightseers. We looked around. We saw the sights. We took the pictures. Uh, we did the thing. I think Paul started doing much the same thing when he got here to Athens. I remember that Paul had been looking for, I think, looking forward to a visit to Athens for a long time. He was highly educated. He would have known about Athens. He would have studied Athens probably since boyhood. As a scholar, he would have studied Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. He knew the poets of Athens. He knew their works. We'll see that later in this passage because he quotes one of them, as we see in the story. He'd read its literature. He'd studied its philosophy. And now he's seeing it for himself and seeing it firsthand. I imagine that was pretty exciting for the Apostle Paul. And as a sightseer, as a chance to tick these things off his list, what all was he looking at? Well, I'm sure he went to the Acropolis. I'm sure he checked that out, the ancient citadel. You could see it for miles around. Uh, It was this vast compilation of architecture and sculptures and temples, all dedicated to their national pride, but also to the deities that they worshipped. The Parthenon was there with its grandeur, uh, its beautiful gold and ivory statue of the goddess Athena, the namesake for the city. It said that the spear point, that gleaming spear point that she was holding up, could be seen from 40 miles away on a clear day. Uh, That's pretty amazing. I'm sure that he would have been there, and I'm sure that he would have seen that. The endless shrines and statues depicting deified heroes, Apollo and Jupiter and Venus and Bacchus and Neptune, all the gods that we've read about in Greek mythology, the gods of Olympus, all meticulously fashioned out of gold and silver and ivory and marble by the finest sculptors of the time, all up there in the Parthenon and the Acropolis. I'm sure that beauty wasn't lost on Paul. I'm sure he would have lingered in what's called the Agora, the marketplace, the place where life happened in Athens. It was a busy place, the town center, the hustle and bustle of business being conducted, the constant flow of people in and out, but also scattered groups of men having discussions and dialogues and debates. All that would take place there in the Agora. As a graduate of the finest schools of Tarsus in Jerusalem, Paul could well have have, uh, participated in those discussions, and it's possible that he did. We know he did later. From a distance, he would have viewed the famous Areopagus, where the judicial body held their court, where they met to discuss important events of the day. So he finds himself here in this magnificent city, this cradle of democracy, A city bursting at the seams with art and literature and philosophy and oratory and religion. And he certainly could have found much to occupy his time. He could have kept busy with the sights and with being a sightseer. Easy to become spellbound by the sheer splendor of what he saw and he heard. But that's not what happened to the Apostle Paul. As he was walking about the city, as he was seeing all the glory and the grandeur, He perceived something, not just what he saw, secondly, what he perceived. And we see it here for us in verse 16. His spirit was stirred in him, and he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry. That's what captured his attention. It wasn't all of the artistry and all the philosophy and all the oratory. I'm sure it started with that. It wasn't the pomp and the pizzazz that drew him in. It wasn't the amazing culture, the art, and everything else. It was the idolatry that drew his attention. Some versions would use this, and they would say it's full of idols, and that's not an incorrect translation, but I don't think it captures the essence. Wholly given over to idolatry is a better understanding of what's going on here. A forest of idols, swamped with idols, 
Xenophon referred to Athens as one, of the, as one great altar, <laughs> one great sacrifice. That's what Athens was known for. A Roman satirist quipped this, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. <laughs> if you were to walk down the street, you could more easily find an altar to a god or a shrine to a god than you would encounter a person. We've heard it said there's more cows than people in Montana. <laughs> That's probably not an incorrect statement. Here in Athens, there were more gods, little g, than there were people. They had religion. They had an altar or an idol for every possible situation they could encounter. And just in case they missed something, we see later in the text, they even had an altar to the unknown God. Trying to cover all of their bases. Why? Why have so many? Well, if you understand their perspective and their philosophy, they thought this, every good thing was attributed to a God. If something good is happening to me, it means there's a God up there that's looking down on me with favor. But every time something bad happens, there's a God up there that's looking down with me and he's angry. And so I've got to continually offer these sacrifices of food and drink and whatever it is to all these different deities so, one, I can keep them in favor with me, and two, so they won't be angry with me. Or if they are angry with me, I've got to appease them. What a horrible way to live. What a terrible way to live your life, constantly concerned about what some deity thinks and what they are trying to do and try to to satiate their anger. Life was spent in an endless effort to please these gods, to satisfy their whims so they could look down with benevolence. But what a sad way to live. And I think Paul saw that. He not only saw the idols, he saw the hopelessness of their idolatry as he was walking through the city. They were lost. They were completely deceived. You see, these gods that they worshipped were simply stronger versions of themselves. They were idols that they had constructed. There's no reason to live any better than the gods did because the gods had the same horrible habits and vices that the people did. What's the motive to live a pure life when the gods didn't even do it? And so they chose to live life to its fullest in a futile attempt to satisfy the emptiness within their hearts. If they wanted to get drunk, there was a God for that. If they wanted to satisfy some lust of their flesh, they had an idol for that. Every base appetite within the heart of man had a corresponding deity to help them satisfy that desire. That was life in Athens, and that's what Paul was seeing. I believe it was Pascal who first stated, there is within the heart of man a God-shaped vacuum which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Great statement. And nowhere was that more clearly illustrated, I think, than in ancient Athens. Every one of their deities was a created thing. And not one single one of those deities could satisfy the longing in the heart of these individuals. Sounds a lot like our culture today, too, doesn't it? And Paul saw this. He saw these people as they really were, a people wholly given over to idols. I think the irony is striking. Because here you look at Athens and you see a culture, you see a people that had risen to the pinnacle of human achievement. As far as you could achieve in every single area except they didn't have God. They were the envy of every other culture. And yet in reality they were spiritually destitute. Reminds me of Luke chapter 4. Spiritually destitute, emotionally shattered, morally enslaved, intellectually groping, and mortally wounded. Remember that section that we covered months ago back in Luke chapter 4? That's how Jesus saw the lost. And that's how Paul is seeing the lost here in this passage. He saw them the same way. He saw them through the eyes of Jesus. 
Oh, I'm sure that the, the art and all these things caught his attention, but he moved quickly from that to seeing the people. And I'll be honest with you, when I was a college student and I was running through New York City and I was running through Boston, I was more interested in the sights that I was seeing than the people that were buzzing around. When we were in, when we were in Paris, I wasn't thinking about their lost condition. I was more concerned of how are we going to find our way back to the hotel on the train because we're lost. And I, I didn't have the heart of Paul. And that struck me as I was working through this passage. I want to have Paul's heart. I want to see the world the way he did. But not only do we see what Paul saw and then what, what Paul perceived, we see thirdly what Paul felt. It says in the passage in verse 16, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry. It was stirred within him. The word means greatly distressed or provoked in his spirit. He was deeply troubled. It's an intense word. Um, it's the word that we get our English word paroxysm from. I should ask some of you that are readers, intellectuals out here, give me a definition. Someone's shaking their head right now. No, don't ask me. I had to look this one up too. I've heard the word, um, and I've actually used it. I, I, I won't tell you where I actually have, have heard it. I mean, it doesn't fit the context here. Um, but a paroxysm is this, a sudden attack or a violent expression of whatever emotion is gripping you. An uncontrollable or overwhelming feeling of emotion. That's the idea behind this word. As Paul looks out and he sees these people and he sees their idolatry and their lost condition, he's overwhelmed by this feeling. He's deeply troubled. Sometimes it's translated as the idea of provoking, and there's an there's a, a aspect of anger that's tied with it. And there may be some of that. I don't think it's wrong for us as believers to have a, an anger directed at Satan for what he's doing in this world. But that's not the main idea here because the word is in the imperfect tense. It's not a sudden loss of temper, but a gradual and growing reaction. The idea is the more Paul walked through the city and the more he saw, the more this angst just kind of welled up within his heart. It was the inescapable reaction of one who loved his God completely and who loved the lost around him fervently. When those two things are true in our lives, we'll have that same reaction that Paul did. It was the response of the one who in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, that he was willing to be himself accursed if it meant the salvation of his kinsmen. I don't think I have that kind of love yet. But that's what drove the Apostle Paul. This word, it's the same way that God viewed idolatry in the Old Testament. Paul comes by this justifiably. Um, the Old Testament was translated into, into Greek for the Greek people. It's called the Septuagint. And so the words that are used to describe that when we see them in Greek, we find them back here in stories of God and idolatry in the Old Testament. It's the same word that was used when the Israelites made the golden calf. God was stirred. He was burdened. He was provoked. It's the same word that's used when Israel committed gross immorality and idolatry in the matter of Peor. You can look that up in your Old Testament. It's after Balaam gave the advice to go and have your people intermarry with the Israelites, and they did. And there was sin that was involved, and God was, was aroused, he was provoked, he was deeply troubled. It's the same word that's used when the northern kingdom made a calf to worship God in Samaria. And so Paul saw this city, this entire city, deceived by Satan, hopelessly lost in their sin with no human way out, and it moved him deeply. 
My mind went back to Psalm 119, verse 136, where David says a similar thing. Rivers of waters run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Grieved for the sin and grieved for the idolatry. And it got me thinking, how do we look at the lost around us? Do we have this same perspective that Paul has? Our culture is just as idol-ridden as Athens was. We don't have an Acropolis where they're all up there on display and statues and, and, and shrines and, and all of that. They're not idols of wood and marble of stone. We don't physically bow down to them. We don't bring them along with us wherever we go. Well, some people do. They've got it hanging from their mirror. Some people do. And some do have shrines outside their house. I've seen that as well. But on the whole, that's not how we operate. We don't intentionally try to appease them or placate them, but they are just as real in our culture today as they were in the days of Athens. Today, men worship at the altar of hedonism, of escapism, of intellectualism, materialism, entertainment, self-indulgence. All these idols that we worship and the lost worship at today. And I was thinking about that this week. Today is Sunday. It's also known as what? The Lord's Day. It's his day. A hundred years ago, everybody understood that. Oh, they may not have honored it, but at least they understood that this was the Lord's Day. And it's okay, our restaurants are closed, and this is not happening on this, but this is a sacred day. That's lost in our culture today. And it's obvious by the fact that we don't have a house full of people here in church today. I'm glad you're here. But there's people all over the place out here, over at O'Reilly's and, and down here at the restaurants that don't get the idea that, that this is God's day. And they are worshiping just like we are. They're just worshiping a different idol, an idol that they have made themselves. And folks, this needs to break our hearts and burden our spirits like it did for the Apostle Paul here in this passage. Maybe an illustration will help. I'm not an artist, so maybe this doesn't grab me the same way, and maybe not you, but two people can look at the same thing and not see it the same way. Imagine a couple people at a museum, an art museum. Um, They're looking at a famous work of art, and the first one comes along, and they admire the piece. And they're looking at it, and they're impressed by it. They understand that the technique's involved, and they marvel at the talent of the artist. They're really taking it in. They appreciate it. But soon they're ready to move on and look at the next one because they want to see what's the next one. They're sightseers. They're just checking it out. Imagine another person, though, that comes in and looks at it, and something about that painting just kind of draws them in. And now they're focusing on it. They're looking at it more intently. And the more they look at it, the more they see, and perhaps it stirs a memory or brings back an event from their childhood. And now they're kind of lost in thought, and that painting has kind of pulled them into that memory. That memory floods their minds, and maybe tears begin to roll down their cheeks. It's obviously that they're being deeply affected by the experience. Two different people looking at the same thing, but seeing something totally different. Maybe an illustration that's a little closer to home. There are some times where I listen during the offering, and I'm listening to the offertory, And honestly, sometimes my mind has already moved forward to the message. I'm trying to think through something or an announcement that I need to share or something like that, and I end up not focused entirely on what the music is. And then there's other times where it pulls me in, and I'm thinking about the words, and sometimes it brings a tear to my eye. Music is a powerful thing. 
And I guess what I'm trying to help us see here is we can walk through our community and we can see everything. Or we can walk through our community and we can perceive what really is going on and feel to the depths that Paul did. And that's what I want the Lord to do for me and that's what I want the Lord to do for us. God, I want you to help me see people like Jesus. I think that's the way it was for Paul. I think he became more than a casual tourist that day as he was walking through the city. As he saw the city wholly given over to idols, it became more than how many pictures can I take in an hour with my iPhone? It became how can I help these people come to know Jesus Christ? He was so consumed with the love of Jesus that the idolatry of the people broke his heart. And I think God needs to do the same for us. But we see not only what Paul saw and what he perceived and what he felt, we see fourthly what Paul did. (laughs) The stirring in his heart prompted him to action. He took some initiative here. And it says in verse 17, Therefore, for this reason, because he was so moved with what he had seen, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. We'll see three things here that Paul did as far as action that he took. First of all, he began in the synagogue. I think he did it daily. This was Paul's pattern, wasn't it? You follow him through his missionary journeys, and he started with the Jews. He went to the synagogue. And here in Athens, it would totally make sense. You've got a city wholly given over to idols. The Jews, at least, would understand that idolatry was wrong. He had a starting point with them something they could agree on, and then from there he could now transfer to the idea of pointing out the Messiah and who he was, convinced them that he was Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. It says here in the passage that he disputed with them, and that can kind of be a strong word, at least in English. It's the Greek word dialoge. We talked about that in Sunday school. There you go, Christian. I'm helping you with your Greek. All right, so write that, that word down and remember it, okay? There'll be a quiz next Sunday. I'll ask you. What, do we, what English word do we get from dialoge? Dialogue. Dialogue. He reasoned with them. He interacted with them. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking of the verse that the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He's having interacted with them. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that may have been in the morning. I'm not sure when they were at the, at the synagogue. But after that was done, where did he go? It says he went to the market. That's the word agora. What we talked about earlier, as he was walking through, he saw this marketplace, and he's thinking to himself, people are coming and going, what a great opportunity. And so he went and he found himself in the town square, the hub of daily life, and people coming and going, merchants and buyers and debaters and onlookers, and and it says that he was there in the market daily with them that met with him. This isn't where he had appointments. I will meet you at this certain portico at such and such a time, and we'll have a discussion. Um, The idea here is those that just happen to come by, uh, those that happen to come near. uh, The word means literally to chance near. If you were here last Sunday night, we talked a little bit about the providence of God Sunday afternoon. And I think Paul was relying upon that to so superintend divine meetings with those who were coming and going. Lord, help me talk to the right people. Give me somebody to interact with. And we see in verse 18, the end of the verse, his message, he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Well, if he preached the resurrection, he also preached the crucifixion. (laughs) You can't have one without the other. He gave him the gospel. He went to the market. And this this intrigued me, and I, I need to put some more thought into this, and I think we all do. We don't have markets like this today. Um... People have to work for a living. Maybe that's the way it looks. It's different, evidently, in their society. 
Uh, they had time, and they would interact, and they would talk. And it says later in the passage, they, they, they loved nothing more than to interact about some new thing. And here's Paul, and he's got something new that they haven't heard before, and so they want to talk about it. But what is our marketplace? Do we have marketplaces here in Columbia Falls that we can use to interact with people as far as the gospel? It's not going to look the same as it did in Athens because we're in a totally different culture. But what should it look like? If the Apostle Paul were to come to Columbia Falls on his, you know, whatever missionary journey, (laughs) how would he approach evangelism here? What would he go about? I don't know that I have the answers to that, but I think we need to be thinking about that. Do we have marketplaces? I think we do. It might look different for me than it does for you. Can, Can you find what God would have be your marketplace? And then go there and be faithful to interact with people about Jesus Christ. Well, as he went to the synagogue every day, and then as he went to the market every day, word started to get out. Paul has a tendency to do that. Everywhere he goes, he tends to stir things up a little bit, right? And that's what's happening here. Uh, It's leading to conversations, it says, with certain philosophers. Look at verse 18. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a setter forth of some strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So I think it's through these meetings that he's having here in the marketplace that philosophers are now coming. They're hearing what he's saying and they're coming and they're having more interactions and debates and discussions with him. There's two rival groups here. Uh, We see the Epicureans and the Stoics. In a sense, it's not unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. Now, they believe different things, but it's the same idea, two rival groups, and a lot of them would have been on the Areopagus court as well. It says that he encountered them. The idea here is to come together and to converse. Sometimes it's in a hostile sense. There may have been some spirited discussions that were going on. I imagine so. Paul was, was intelligent. He wasn't going to back down, but he would have these conversations with them. It's also in the imperfect tense, which is the idea of regular and repeated action in the past. It wasn't a one-time conversation. They kept coming. Something about what Paul was saying intrigued them, and they'd go home and think about it. They'd come back the next day, and what about this? (laughs) And they'd talk about that, and then the next day, what about this? And if we can leave people with that sense of curiosity where they're thinking about it, and they come back and continue asking questions, that's a wonderful thing. And we see that taking place here with Paul. Well, let's look at these philosophers a little bit because I think it might help us as we understand our day-to-day as well. First was the Epicureans. And these are people that were followers of Epicurus. Um, If we're just to kind of narrow it down and give just a a brief synopsis, uh, these would be individuals that were hedonistic, lovers of pleasure. That's what they lived for. They saw the gods as disinterested in the affairs of man. They didn't think God was concerned about who they were, what they did, any of that. They didn't see, they believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in judgment, which we'll see Paul bring up judgment in the message that he brings to them here just a little bit later. Their philosophy is you only go around once, so get everything you can get while you're going. Enjoy life. They had a love for fine living. They believed in indulging their desires. And if there's no afterlife and no judgment, why not? They made sense with their philosophy. Do we see people living that lifestyle today in our communities? Absolutely we do. That's balanced out by the Stoics. They were taught by Zeno there in Athens. 
And these had a different take on things. They, they valued reason over emotions. Personal discipline, self-control were big things to the Stoics. In fact, they would say, don't let your emotions show. It's a sign of weakness. Now, some of you ladies are thinking, yep, every man I know is a Stoic. That's not entirely true. Not entirely true. Maybe men aren't as good at it as we should be. But that's their idea. It's a sign of weakness. You should be unmoved by inner feelings and by outward circumstances. You've heard the expression or read it in your books. He had a Stoic response, right? What's that idea? There's no emotion on his face. And that's how they lived their lives. What a hopeless way to live your life. And it's interesting the two main individuals responsible for this philosophy actually committed suicide. And suicide was pretty rampant within the ranks of these people because of that perspective and that philosophy and that lifestyle. We see people like that in our culture today too, don't we? The one said enjoy life, the other said endure life, but both, both of them missed the way to eternal life. And that burdened Paul's heart. He wanted to share that with them. Notice next what they thought about Paul. (laughs) Were they ready to elevate him and have a statue for the Apostle Paul as this new God? No, they weren't going down that road. What does it say, first of all? Some thought he was a babbler. (laughs) I don't know that I'd want that on my tune. You guys maybe think the same thing. I'm up here talking, and maybe I'm a babbler. I don't know. Um, But that's what they thought of the Apostle Paul. He's a babbler. Um, The word literally means a seed picker. (laughs) It's the picture of a bird just hopping around, picking a seed here, picking a seed there, picking a seed there. And lots of different ways it was used, but in reference to Paul, it's the idea that he's finding his information all over the place, secondhand information. He picks a little here, picks a little there, picks a little there, and puts it all together, and he's just up there babbling, not making any sense. It was not a term of endearment. A purveyor of secondhand information. (laughs) Others, if you look down in the verse, that he was a setter forth of some strange gods. Does that strike you as ironic? (laughs) Here in Athens, where they had a God to every conceivable thing, they thought that the God of the Bible was strange. He was so different than the gods that they worshipped that they couldn't process that, they couldn't understand it. To them, he was foreign and alien. And I think it's a good reminder for us that our God also seems strange to this lost world that that we're in. The way we live our lives, the way we serve this God, and this God that we serve is strange to them. He's misunderstood. He's often misrepresented. But Paul didn't change his message to try to get them to think better of him. I'm sure he didn't like being called a babbler, but he continued to preach Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And what was the result? It aroused their curiosity that they kept coming back for more and kept coming back for more. And we'll see later on next week as we go through the rest of this passage that they actually now bring him up to their high court, to the Areopagus. We want to hear more about this. That's incredible. That encourages my heart as I, as I try to share with people. It's not always going to be perfect, and they may not always think that I am. They may call me a babbler. What you're saying is awful strange. But if it can arouse their curiosity, and if we can say it, the Holy Spirit can use it in their lives, and we'll see an individual that trusts Christ, I think, because of these conversations and further conversations at the Areopagus. Oh, as we close this morning, how does this account impact you today? I told you it challenged me. The city of Athens had a profound impact on the Apostle Paul. 
You can't read through these first verses by saying it impacted him deeply. And in turn, I think Paul had a pretty profound effect on the city of Athens. The two go hand in hand, and I think there's a connection here. I think it's this, when God breaks our hearts for the lost, then we in turn will have an impact on our community. But it starts with that burden in our own hearts. So I guess I'm asking all of us today, are we sightseers or are we soul seekers? Columbia Falls isn't a big city. Our valley is growing and it is getting bigger and you include Kalispell and there's a lot going on. And we do have a million people that come every year into, into our corridor here. They come to sightsee, and we do some of that here as well. Are we looking at these people as souls? Or, I hate to say it, are we looking at them as a nuisance? How about the folks that live here, our neighbors, those that are are connected to us? Do we see the loss with spiritual perception? Does that ignite a fire within us to share Christ and the loss like it did for Paul? I pray that it would. I ask myself these questions. When's the last time that... My heart broke as I drove through town, realizing that this car that's passing me has somebody in it that probably doesn't know Jesus Christ. It's a lot easier for me to, to, to get upset because they cut me off or because it's, I can't pull out of my driveway anymore because there's so many cars going down the road. Why, why does that burden my heart more than the fact that that person doesn't know Christ? I've got, I've got priorities wrong when that happens. When was the last time that you wept for the lost? Oh, my friends, let's ask God together to stir our hearts like he did Paul's. That it would be impossible for us to drive around our neighborhoods and our community without being impacted by the emptiness of the people that we see. Remember, no created thing can fill the void that only God can fill. Let's ask God to burden our hearts. Let's ask God to motivate us and give us the initiative to go out and reach out to our marketplace. And I think as we do that, as we trust him for that, he's going to give us fruit. Father, I thank you for this passage. Father, I thank you for stirring my heart. God, I I couldn't get past the, the third verse in the passage. I pray that this week I wouldn't be able to get over it either. I don't want to just move on from this and have it be an emotional response from something that I read and studied. God, I want you to change my heart and change my life. Father, give me a view of the loss that you have and that the Apostle Paul had. And God, as we're willing to go, as you ignite that fire in our soul, give us the courage to stand up and to say something. Regardless of what somebody might think or how they might respond. God, I thank you for Paul's example. Stir within us the heart of Paul this week. And Father, we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.